Good evening. Welcome to Revelations Radio Network, Revere Radio Network, iTunes, various other podcast sites, Podomatic. My name is Chris, and this show is called Nowhere to Run. You can go to the website, which is conspiracyclosed.com slash nowhere to run, or nowhere to run.podomatic.com. You can email me, which is chris at conspiracyclosed.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclosed.com. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Before we get going to anything of uh, substance, well, this is something of substance, but I, I want to talk about chemtrails. What are these things? I mean, I, I mean, I've been around the conspiracy block, so to speak, a lot of times, and I just haven't really run into the the authoritative opinion, or I, I'm not really looking for opinion. Just just any kind of you know hard evidence of the chemical composition and maybe. I mean, I know it's probably weakening our immune systems and whatever else, but there's got to be another aspect to it. There has to be something going on there that's more than just a weakening of immune systems because it's, I don't know. If anybody has anything on that, I really, really would like you to send send me what you have to chris at conspiracyclothes.com. One thing that makes uh, me interested in it is if you will notice... Every once in a while, and I think they have uh, some of this on bariumblues.com, pictures of this, and I saw it the other day. And it's when the clouds, after they spray a lot of them, and sometimes, um, you, you know, because, okay, i got a few things I want to talk about this, now that I think about it. First of all, this, that they that the clouds go into this weird, like, pattern, like, repeating pattern all across the sky, and, and you're looking at it like, no, I don't think that I've ever seen that before. I was asking uh, uh, Connie, my girlfriend, that the other day, I was like, okay, now look at that. Do you remember seeing that when you were a kid? Do you ever remember seeing this happen? She was like, yeah, I think I remember seeing that. That's nothing crazy. I'm like, yeah, but I don't think it was. I really don't think that that is. I mean, there's like repeating patterns of clouds. And I could be wrong, but I noticed like there's this just hint of like, you know, when you ask people that aren't really paying attention to it when you point out a chemtrail it's like you see that it's like oh yeah i remember seeing those ever since i was a kid it's like well no i don't think you did i I remember seeing those when i was a kid too and i always remember specifically actually thinking i wish that they were longer you know i wish that that every once in a while a plane would have a a longer than normal contrail as in condensation trail and then and then you would be like wow yeah that's really cool i wish it was longer i specifically remember having that moment but anyway so now you'll point that out to somebody and say, you know, what, what's that, you know? And they'll be like, uh, oh, yeah, that just happens. It's like, no, it doesn't just happen. I mean, that's literally not possible for that to happen and be condensation anyway. It has to be something other than condensation. It's possible, obviously. But Anyway, so my question is, they're so busy with it is the thing that's getting me. I mean, the entire city is covered with it. And then they like switch it on every now and again, and it'll be radiated. It'll be like wavy. That's interesting to me. Uh, that point, and that leads me to believe it's not just about our immune system. I think it's like an agent to interact with something else. And I think that that has serious implications, considering that the scientists that we're talking about, the ones that were very very interested in this uh, uh, electronic field. You know, magnetic field, ELF field, EMF field, all this stuff. Those scientists are also really, really into ch- channeling and, uh, you know, uh, this this kind of thing. And, I mean, 
<coughs> a critique I get a lot is that I'm just I'm just scared of that stuff, and that's why I I just am I'm demonizing anybody that, that that's into it. It's like no, I'm I'm saying it's a real common occurrence that the people that the high military scientists are also high occult occultists, as in they listen to the channeled beans and they do what they tell them and they write about it. So that that's just a problem because what are these beings? We, do we know their motives and why do they care about this particular kind of science? I don't know. I could be off on that. I, I don't want to lead you to think that all military science is to opening demonic doors, but it is a possibility. I, and not just not just thinking, oh well, it could be a possibility. I mean, just from reading what these people are about, and I've said that you can go into the show notes and I've at least a few times linked people to uh, the. I think I called it in one time research gold mine. Hey, you just uh, you know, here's a little. I had another point about the chemtrails thing before I do that. Um, I'm all over the place here, but let me go ahead and finish this thing. If anybody doesn't know this. Um, my girlfriend showed this to me a while back, and I was like, oh, wow, it's like the, my favorite tool in internet searching. And it really would help in my sites, who are, which are like an entire page full of, um, of information. I like it that way for a few reasons. One, it, it has a lot of the keywords that I like in one place, which makes it probably higher in the search engines for the crazy things that I talk about. But also, um, well, I guess that's the main reason. But the way to navigate that, if you're looking for something, and in this case, I'm asking you to look for the particular link that I was going to refer to you. It's called uh, Research Goldmine, I think is what I titled it in one of the uh, shows. And I linked to the Mind Control Forum's uh, biographies. And what you do is you go to Edit in either Firefox or Internet Explorer, and that there is a Find in this page or Search or something like that, and then it'll find anywhere in the page where a particular word is mentioned. And it's really helpful, especially in sites like that. I can't remember what the other thing about chemtrails was. I know that a lot of people around here are getting sick and they're noticing, you know, like everybody's got some upper respiratory problems and it's like, you know, pretty soon, if it is something like that, I mean, we're, we're just going to start dying off, right? And they're going to be like, well, you know, it's some kind of major, everybody's getting this plague and they'll give it a name and they'll tell us to go get vaccines. That's a possibility, but I don't know. It really, I really wish, I'm going to pause this and see if I can think about what it is that I was trying to say about that. Okay, I figured it out. It was uh, that that they, I've noticed in at least two, probably three Sundays that they don't spray on Sundays. And it's really rare, I don't know about where you live, but it's really rare for them not to be spraying. I mean, it's like, it's every day except for Sundays for some reason. <laughs> I mean, isn't that isn't that weird, though? I mean, here is what we can prove. That they are doing something that's probably... The Air Force denies doing it, okay? Yet, they are doing it. I mean, you can watch the plane as it's spraying it. We know that it's physically impossible to be condensation. And we know that it's ridiculous to assume that planes now just are all really, really mechanic... Have bad mechanical problems and smoke... Uh, you know, for, for thousands of miles, hundreds of miles anyway. And anyway, so, so we know that they're spraying something. 
we know that the Air Force, who would probably at least have an idea of who it was that was spraying somebody, or at least, you know, have them on radar, or at least know what to tell us, is completely denying that it exists. So, what, so, they are doing something, but then to have them not do it on Sunday? I mean, what, what's up with that? I mean, it's really weird. I don't know. Just check. Notice that next time. At least here in Nashville, Tennessee, they don't spray on Sundays, or at least they haven't the past two, probably three Sundays. I think I've noticed the last three Sundays, but, and, uh, I'm not saying it's some kind of religious thing, because again, I think the Sabbath day is Saturday. I don't know. They maybe get Sunday off from, from this, but it's really rare now because I love, I, you don't know what you have till it's gone, and you look at the sky, and you know that it's clean, real air, and there's real clouds in the sky. It's just like, wow, this is great. You know, and you really don't know what you have till it's gone. But again, I don't know what they are. I know I'm putting forth a theory that, that, that they're doing something, and they're going to radiate it, probably using harp, and, and they're doing all this stuff, but that's just a guess. I want to make that really clear. I don't know. I have no clue, no reason to really think that, except for I know that the the scientists are are really into some weird stuff. And so, I'm asking you, if you know anything, please. My my email is chris c h r a s at conspiracyclothes dot com, and link me to something that I can hold on to regarding all this stuff. Okay, now I want to talk about Jordan Maxwell a little bit. Uh, Frank Lordy at SalvationRevelation.com from the Revelations Radio Network did a video about Jordan Maxwell. Jordan Maxwell is, if you, I'm sure most of you, maybe some of you don't, but he's, he's, he was kind of the guy that started everybody in the, uh, I guess probably early 90s, really started coming out and being the first conspiracy Illuminati guy told everybody about symbolism and and secret societies and all this stuff and he was and basically and had has been saying the exact same thing that Zeitgeist is saying from day one that was always a part of his shtick and he, and that was always I mean always there that was part you can hear him uh, rattling off that same thing from the very beginning anyway so Frank does this video on him and it's kind of an expose, although the term's getting a little worn out by me, probably mostly, but, um, and I, yeah, I'll get into that in a minute, but basically, it's a really good point, the movie is, and I really encourage you to watch it, I'll put it on the show notes section. Basically, it's something that you can miss while you're getting your mind blown about all the Illuminati symbolism and the secret societies and all this stuff. It's really easy to, you know, and take it in context with the Matrix, you know. When you get waking up to the real world, and it's so shattering, everything's gone, you know, that you believed was true. You're an open book, you're a clean slate to be told any other kind of new quote-unquote truth. Because at that point, you've just been proved with facts and hard evidence that certain things are not like you believed. And so you're just you're just a fertile field ready to be have have other seeds planted and not check them out. And that is the same MO that's been used over and over and over again. I can't make that point any clearer that that's why. I mean, it, it's like anyway, let me finish my freaking thoughts here. Um, 
So, anyway, Frank puts out this movie. It's really, really good. And it points out that basically he's saying the exact same New World Order philosophy. I mean, the guy is saying that we should be divine, that, 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 that these hybrids, the sons of God in the Bible, are actually an ancient alien race that basically um, seeded us and that they have a divine right, his own words, to rule over us. He says that they're in power now and they're much, much smarter and wise than we are. And he's smart enough to rec recognize that. They are very smart and very wise. And then they have a divine right to rule him and me and you. And he is giddy with excitement about their return to set up an order. And uh, this is the same guy that's supposed to be, you know, fighting world government and the Illuminati and everything. Yet, like Tessarian and Freeman and, and, and the rest of them that are all, you know, theosophically based. I mean, I say that really with no proof except for with Tessarian. Um, but the whole thing about this, this, uh, this, this race coming back to rule us is just a setup. It's a setup for a new world order that we're not going to believe is had the Illuminati has anything to do with. In fact, I think that when this, you know, whether, whether real or unreal race of hybrids comes back, they might even expose George Bush and expose those people that we've been built up with and, and poked in a, like we're a raging animal in a cage that they just keep poking with George Bush. Don't you hate him? Isn't he bad? He's a Christian. Don't you hate Christians? Rah, rah, rah. They're just poking us in a cage, getting us madder and madder and madder. And they're getting these, they have a blank check to just take Bush and just mess up the entire world. That he has, he can just blanketly go up, go around and, and force the uh, the infrastructure of the new world order on countries on us because it, o the only net result is is that more anger towards him and more anger towards Christians which I mean this is the ridiculousness of it that we don't even that people that know good and well that George Bush isn't a Christian they they know about Bohemian Grove they know about the skull and bones they know he's not a Christian yet they they have to believe that he's a Christian because it fits it, it it gives them this this chance to to focus the entire problem on christianity which is what zeitgeist is offering and nobody seems to and that's what maxwell and cesarean is offering just go look at cesarean's forum and, and, and they, they just like throw little chunks of meat at these ravaging wolves and they'll be like you know a youtube clip full of a you know jesus camp and and that awful woman on the trading wives thing which she just just ridiculously crazy and it'll be other just horrible uh you know crazy preachers that are just you know ridiculously awful. everything that is uh that is sub just bait to hate christianity they just keep throwing it in these forums and everybody's just eating it up and tearing it up i hate christians gosh i hate them so much you know and it's like they don't even understand that they're being that they are being tooled man i mean that's like that's like not how you want to live you don't want to just get told what to think do you i mean that's how it is i mean you can hate something you can hate it if you want to it's a bad thing to do it leaves a foothold open to just control you it always has been that's why you're not supposed to let the sun go down on your anger that's why he singled it out specifically and said don't do that because that gives the enemy a foothold in your life 
I mean, it is. It's just like digging your heels right into your side and say, yeah. And then they can just whisper louder in your ear, get madder, get madder. Some people's entire lives are just soaked with hate because they, it's a perpetual thing. The more you hate, the more foothold, the more it can drive in, the more it can tell you to hate. And their entire life is wasted. That's why forgiveness is so central to everything because forgiveness completely drains it, cuts off its power supply. Forgiveness gets that foot out of your side and gets you to start over. It's how to empower yourself, to put the power in your hands. It's your chance to end the cycle. That's what forgiveness is in that case because anger, as many of you know, is illogical. Some of the most illogical things that you've ever done were done in a fit of rage, things that you wish you'd never done because rage and illogical thought go hand in hand it's it's a perpetual thing and no oh yeah so anyway what what i did with the jordan maxwell thing in, in frank's video is i attached it to different forum posts and wrote a forum uh post on several sites saying just various things about maxwell why this is exactly what the nwo is saying and link to some things about him that are just really nefarious and, and implicate him. And, and, and a lot of people's retort continually is that I'm just so scared of occult things. And because he's into occult things, I, I just it just makes me so afraid. And so I have to lash out because I don't understand it. I, I'm not saying that at all. I, for, I, I'm just saying that we're, we're being lied to. It's not really up for debate. The Sitchin is wrong stuff that him and... And to Sarian and, and, and uh, Freeman use uh, as their central theme are is wrong. I mean, they don't discuss SitchinIsWrong.com. Nobody even admits that it's that it exists. And here it is proving not only that they're wrong, but that they had to know the Sitchin at least had to know that he was wrong when he wrote the books. He had to be doing it for a reason. Now, my point has been, what reason would somebody do that? Why would you take the risk? I mean, at some point, you would get found out. But if you had a lot of money, you know, let's say a publisher and advertising campaigns, and, you know, you were on every show, and you got all the coast-to-coast -coast interviews you could shake a stick at, if there was just a lot of funding, you could make it be true. You could make it be true if you just had the money. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, if it sounds good. Now, eventually, though, and that's why they had to say things like, Sitchin is so smart, nobody can uh, translate uh, texts except for him. So if anybody ever says anything, they're probably wrong because he's the only guy in the world that can do it. It's like, that's that's kind of like saying, uh, if anybody says anything uh, different, then they're wrong. I mean, you just, you can't do that. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta still be... Uh, accountable to facts and same thing with zeitgeist if the if the history doesn't say it then it can't be true zeitgeist says the exact same thing they say some people will try to say that we're not right but those people are wrong and they haven't done the research it's like you you can't say that that you they you can't just say if, if there's another opinion that they're wrong uh, you have to be accountable to the things that you say you didn't reference anything in ancient history but uh so 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 you know, referencing ancient history is how you prove them wrong. They said things exist that don't exist. It's not a matter of opinion. So anyway, my points are, look at the lies. We can prove things are lies. Now we need to prove, we don't need to prove, we need to ask, why lie about that? But there is a definite growing 
darkness, hatred, illogical belief system that's being built up right now, and I think it's going to be transferred to the real world soon enough. But as I said, I think this it's getting its genesis here in the conspiracy world. I'm not sure if they're going to like pull the plug on and say, hey, to the world, say, hey, look at all these conspiracies. They're actually true. Here's proof. The world's messed up, and then and then you know pull the plug on their system because I don't really see that actually benefiting them that that is I don't see that if you can I don't see them in there's any reason for them to admit say 9-11 was an inside job because as far as I can kind of game plan that that would not be beneficial to them because it would it would uh, it would breed mistrust in the media and they would say, hey, the media lied about us in this way, this way, this way. Wow, they lie a whole lot. Look at all these times they lied. And then that would be good for truth and bad for them. So I don't really see 9-11 being an inside job being released. I don't know. Maybe they might throw Bush to the wolves, like I was saying earlier. I, I do think that they will have to do that in a um, system of this new world alien order. I think the aliens will be sufficient to to be the the world is not like we've been told kind of thing and uh, create the anti-God, anti-Christian sentiment because we will believe anything those aliens quote-unquote tell us. So I think that the aliens may say, and this George Bush is a bad man and he's hurting the environment and wars and are bad and whatever, I don't know. Maybe something like that, but I don't really know. Anyway, so it's just just a bad a bad thing is brewing. I do look at it like the Lord of the Rings. This this army and this split is about to occur. This this division of people seeking truth is going to be divided on these dogmatic grounds. It's going to be it's going to split right down the middle. It's going to be the occult side, the Tessarian Maxwell Ike. Freeman guys that, that are going to worship world government and the aliens and believe that they are, are so much smarter because they've been initiated into these these symbols and, and truth. And the aliens are going to be with them. They're going to say, these are the guys that we like. These are the guys that have the truth. And then they're going to be on the other side, the Alex Jones and the Christian patriots who are, are all short-circuiting in the event of this alien threat and now they're the enemies and if you know one they're trying to uh eat your babies and they're trying you know they're just going to demonize us so much in the media and and it's going to be such a a fevered hate towards christianity and they're going to just throw all the meat they can at the wolves and they're just going to rip into it and i'll say that there's just so much hate brewing against me personally it's just really ravenous and it's okay because I know that I'm going against like a brick wall here a lot of times but I know it's not for the people that are fighting back illogically it's for those people reading it and saying you know on one side we have a guy offering evidence and proof and on the other side we just have name calling it at this guy saying this stuff he's making logical points and these people are just getting pissed it doesn't make any sense so it's for those people not for not for the people fighting back and and you know, I've got enemies now. I've got serious, real deal enemies that hate me with a passion. And that's a new thing to me. I mean, I went through my whole life thinking how I didn't have any enemies. It was just, a, I, I, I just am friendly with all the people that I know, even the people that I don't agree with. Well, you know, it was just, 
I've never had enemies until now, and I, 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 it's odd because now I don't mind it. I don't mind it because I know that uh, it's it's true. So, and I, I know that that it's it's okay. But one of the things that one of my favorite critiques of of me that I see is that I am a Jesuit. And I think that is just great. Um, one of the guys that says I'm a Jesuit says that the funding for all the exposing of, of Tassarian and Maxwell and, and the Zeitgeist movie all comes from the Vatican and the Jesuits and it comes from the top, I think is what the quote was. Uh, I think that is really funny because as I was saying to uh, Troy, I was emailing him uh, the other day, Troy, who, who is the guy, who is the biggest Vatican exposer guy out there Troy uh, is myspace is myspace.com slash soul underscore inspiration we did like a five hour interview with him if you spend any time in myspace you probably know about this guy but anyway so that's his whole thing I mean he he is really really uh, an interesting guy you can go listen to that interview but anyway I was telling him that you know these people were saying that I was funded because uh, he was saying that he got that all the time too that he was a Vatican Jesuit op, op. and uh, I was saying funding for some forum posts and a podcast it's just like well, I guess the slow economy is hitting the Vatican too I mean that, that's all they had the, the cash to shell out I mean it doesn't cost very much for a podcast and you know forum posts are free so you know I mean I guess I don't know where the funding is is coming from but it, it's it's stupid and that's the same thing they use for Alex Jones that he's a Jesuit because and the the root of it and the, this is ridiculous that it comes from quote Christians like the spiritually smart guy and whatever because it's anti-Christian in its nature in this in this idea they perceive and this is just generally speaking because of the zeitgeist mentality that's permeated this entire truth movement that anybody that's a Christian is is uh, you know, aligned with the Vatican. They don't make any distinction between the Vatican. They believe the Vatican when the Vatican says that they are Christianity. They don't make any distinction in the complete opposite in, I mean, in that opposite in this whole, uh, you know, system. We believe uh, fundamentally the exact opposite of what the Vatican believes about just about every issue. And the problem is, is that they say that we don't, and you believe them. And uh, so anyway, I'm getting a lot of that stuff here. So I really wish they'd, uh, and that's how you support this show, is to pray for me and uh, my girlfriend here. And just pray for us in whatever way you can think about. And uh, we would appreciate it. And pray for everybody on the Revelations Radio Network. I know that the, the oppression, the spiritual attacks are, are prevalent with all of us. And I, I do think that we're up against something in the near future. I don't think that there's a lot of time. I think something is going to happen really soon. I feel like we're just right here, and, and and we can't we can't let this this idea that it's okay. You look outside and it's a sunny day, and you got to go to work today, and you know then you got to go uh, pick the kids up at soccer practice or whatever. You know. Yeah, I'm not saying that we should not do life or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. But we need to realize that we're in the context of some major things, you know, and and 
And we need to understand this simple fact that now, that if God is real, okay, if He really created the universe, and I think most of us, Christians or unchristians, have some kind of philosophy about that. We'll all agree, yes, okay, that God is real. We look outside, we look at the trees, we look at the sky, we notice its vastness and, 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 and everything, how it just is in such harmony. And we notice that, that there must be a divine creator. And that if he exists, he is very, very skilled, very powerful. If this is true, if he really did create all this and create us and create our minds and create all this stuff, then, then that God, the God who did that, is really, really powerful. Now, if that's true, then we need to be um, attentive to his will. And it really doesn't matter what we think. If you really want to know what I think, it doesn't matter what you want. Because this God is pretty powerful. And it's a good bet to do what he wants. Now, that being said, it is the most amazing miracle in the universe. That what he wants is literally perfect. It has It's a matter of the heart. All the new age people out there, what do you want? What, what do you think? What are you shooting for? You're shooting for this enlightenment. You want to be like Jesus. You use that all the time. Oh, he, Jesus had it figured out, right? I mean, he was he didn't have any ego. It's all about ego, right? You don't want that. But yet, all the people that are preaching no ego, Freud and Tassarian and the rest of them, I mean, obviously have huge ego issues. So they're not really one to really tell you how to do it, in my opinion. But hey, you know, you can double speak all you want to, double think your yourself right into their their system. But here we are. We we want to be like that. We and, and apparently that's how we're supposed to be. That's the meaning of life, right? To be to be like that. And that's all he wants. He literally, the creator of the universe. The guy that we all agree has to be the most powerful, amazing being in ever that, that that just didn't. I mean, it's just beyond words. Literally, I can't. I can't even think of words to describe his vastness, his amazing power. And he just wants us to love him. That's what Jesus said when they asked him, "What's the what's the main commandment?" And he said. Just to love God with all your all your might. I can't. I'm not quoting it, but love Him with all your soul, all your power, all your might. It's probably a paraphrase there, but that's what. And the second, and he said the second one was like this: to love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's that's pretty intense. As a Christian, and and he was pretty much the founder of Christianity. That's what he said. That's what he said. That's what it was all about to love God. Now, do you just go out there and start loving God? No. That's the trick. It's like teaching a man to fish versus giving a man a fish. A lot of people have a lot of destruction in their lives because their family was trying to teach them Christianity by giving them fish. That is, they were telling them to read the Bible three times a day and to do this and go to church every time the door is open and to to not sin and do this. That's just like giving them a fish. That's telling them to do what it is that they're supposed to do if if they had it in their heart. Where teaching the principles of the heart 
is and teaching them how to love God, to, to guide them in a path that would that would show them the love of God, and to show them the power of God, to show that He He answers every prayer of those that love Him. It's a matter of the heart. He's looking at your heart. He doesn't. It was all about the heart. It was. It was that you will be now evident of these things that were being forced down your throat will happen automatically if you just love him now now what is the path to doing that first and foremost is prayer literally set aside time in your day not while you're driving your car not whatever just find some time to lay it all out what do you need from god what do you what 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 you know open that channel to god and and pray to him and ask him for the things you need and then and, and, and ask for faith ask to be led uh, to him to knock and the door will be open he's ready ask to give ask and you will receive i mean it he is he's ready to give you the information you need and the and the power that you need in your life and the miracles that you need in your life that's really amazing the more you learn about him and the more you learn what he wants, it's not what you're told that he wants by the world and by the people that hate him. They they tell you what he wants and they have no idea. I mean, did they really read it? I know mean, Jordan Maxwell tells you that not to read the Bible because he read it for you. And so he'll say, you know, there's no need. He'll tell you what it says. He'll tell you what God wants. Just listen to him. Okay, what I want to do now is something I think is really, really important. I've only really realized the severity of the lies about what's going on with Israel uh, recently to, how, to see how different it is. I mean, we all know that the media portrays things exactly the opposite in most cases of how they really are. And that the truth and the reality of uh, what's really happening, like physically happening in the world, oftentimes is not anywhere near what they say is happening and they say what they want to to advance some sort of agenda and nowhere is this more evident than in our recent dealings with the state of israel since it was created i i was blown away about what what even i as a christian think is happening over there right now and the way the way it's portrayed we somehow think that that like, you know, there's a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment in the conspiracy world. It's like some people are deceived into thinking that's everything, you know, especially it's just this ravenous hatred that's just being, again, poked and prodded by those that are that are feeding that. But any anybody that's logical about that, whether they're a Christian or not, will understand that it's it. there are elements in every single group that has any power ever. And that if you look at like America and the government versus the people, you will know that there are two completely set, different sets of uh, ideas and opinions and one does not represent the other. But listen to this. I'm going to play, it's about, a, I don't know, a little over an hour clip called uh, The Betrayal of the Chosen. This is the second part of that from Chuck Missler. You'll just be amazed. And I know a lot of people here probably, you know, listen to... Sarian or or and those people who are who get told just like the mainstream they, they, for some reason they sing the the CNN line on, on this point which is really highly dubious if you ask me 
but they uh, they they sing the the world song, the mainstream media song about Israel. But the facts are different. This is not some kind of guess. This is what really happened, and what you don't know about America's dealings with Israel, which you should know, which was reported but not told to you and not made evident. And we're getting told a completely different story. This is amazing stuff. And so I want to uh, go ahead and play the rest of the clip. And I also want to ask you guys again, if you understand where I'm coming from, if you understand what I'm trying to do, please begin to pray fervently for God to shine a light on this deception, that it be time to to shine a light on all this darkness, to raise up the truth and contrast it with this deception, so that the people that have been deceived by it, those that shouldn't be deceived, can be gathered back in before it, whatever it is happens that it is that i ask that you pray fervently for god to begin to show his people the truth and show everyone the truth to expose these blasphemers these liars to show them for what they are that that was which was done in the dark will be brought to the light let it be uh, a great work that he does through us if you know something that you can do, then then begin to do it. Show everybody that this same religion that is being uh, touted by our the biggest conspiracy theorists are the exact same dogmas of the New World Order and uh, the the uh, Illuminati. I mean, we're it's it's nothing better than Stockholm syndrome, and we can't see it. Let's pray. Let's pray fervently for it. And uh, let me play this clip, and thanks for your prayers, and thanks for your support. You can email me at chris at conspiracyclothes.com. Take it easy. See, it's the only democracy in the Middle East, incidentally. All Islamic countries are non-democratic. It has a unicameral legislature called the Knesset, 120 elected representatives. Suffrage is available to all citizens uh, at age 18. And uh, the one dilemma it faces, and it still faces today, is whether it's to be a secular religious state, and those tactics continue one way or the other. Uh, within months of the armistice, the Fayyadeen raids across Israel's borders begin. Uh, Fayyadeen is the Arabic word for a suicide squad. So murder, economic warfare, and other mayhem, of course, uh, became the order of the day. Between 1948-1952, there were 800,000 Jews expelled from Arab countries. And uh, most of them fled to Israel, and they were absorbed. Now, it's kind of interesting that uh, 650,000 Arabs fled Israel. These are now confined to refugee camps, and uh, they become a convenient propaganda opportunity. They receive no help from the Arab nations. You could well ask why, and we'll talk more about that as we go, but let's get the rest of the history sort of focus. Yasser Arafat of the Husseini clan begins to organize in 1951 the Palestinian radicals in Cairo and uh, he recruits leaders for the PLO and, and uh, over the next uh, four or five years terrorists raised in Israel from adjoining Arab states uh, start uh, from Gaza and elsewhere. The Israeli army adopts a policy of reprisals. When they get hit they hit back and that works. That starts to get things under control. It's interesting how we don't learn that lesson. Appeasing the terrorists is Bad news. But anyway, by 1954, it was clear that these incursions were not sporadic, but were organized and carried out with the knowledge and cooperation of the Arabs. See, they love this kind of warfare because it's deniable. They can provide the funds to certain radicals that accomplish what they want, and they can always deny it. See? And, uh, of course, these governments, fortunately, were having their own problems. 
The whole Muslim world was uh, very unstable as a result of its defeat, and I won't go through uh, country by country rundown, that's pretty obvious. But in any case, we finally get to about 1956 with the Sinai campaign. And uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal and blocks Israeli shipping. So Israel's going to capture the Sinai from Egypt and uh, also dismantle the terrorist bases in Gaza. Egypt took the initiative with uh, Suez, but the campaign started in October of 56. Uh, the Israelis uh, uh, drop a paratroop uh, drop deep into the central Sinai at the entrance of the uh, Mitla Pass, 156 miles from the Israeli border and only 45 miles from the Suez Canal. The diplomatic purpose of the raid was to threaten the Suez Canal and give the French and British the pretext they needed to go in and protect it, if you will. And by November 1st, the British and French were mobilizing their forces and... Uh, Twice there was an effort to call a ceasefire by the UN Security Council, and twice the British and the French veto it. Uh, by November 6th, the British had landed at Port Said, and, but at this stage, the world opinion had turned against them, and they agreed to a ceasefire at midnight, uh, roughly the 6th or 7th of November of 1956. Now, the U.S. and Soviet pressure on Israel forced the Israeli withdrawal from the Sinai without a peace treaty. Get this, Dwight Eisenhower guarantees the protection of the Israeli shipping. Underlying guarantee. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, if you can't trust him, who can you trust, right? Well, something else that happens. In 1964, realize the date. This is three years prior to the Six-Day War, prior to a West Bank problem. At the time this, I'm speaking in 1964, what later became called the West Bank belonged to Israel's enemies, right? In 1964, the PLO is organized. It's not organized to right a wrong with the West Bank. It's organized before there even was a problem. With what object in their label and in their charter to do one thing, to liberate all of Palestine. And uh, it calls for Israel's destruction. And that call for Israel's destruction is still in place. And, of course, it initiates a campaign of terror across Israel's borders. And they escalate that. In 1967, a couple of years later, Egypt floods the Sinai with troops and blockades Israel's shipping uh, in the Red Sea, and the American guarantee to protect Israel fails to take effect. Now, again, uh, we could go through all the details in the interest of time. I won't get into the machinations that led up to the war and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, we're going to take a shortcut because there's some other points we really want to get into here. It was from June 5th through 10th, Six-Day War, and Israel defeated, much to the amazement of... In fact, I can remember, I at that time, was a senior executive of the Ford Motor Company. I was in the executive dining room that luncheon, and it happened. The table I was sitting in, there were two guys that had just come back from Cairo. They had just finished shutting down Ford of Egypt. And uh, the Six-Day War was just starting. And I can remember the conversation. We all expected Israel to get wiped out in a matter of days. We had, against little Israel, we had... Egypt, armed to the teeth by the Russians. We had Syria. We had Iraq, Jordan. So, um, as you know, of course, the, Israel captures the Sinai and Gaza, Judea, Samaria, and the Golan Heights, ultimately. In fact, there was one time that uh, Eric Sharon had circled the entire Egyptian, I think it was Third Army, he didn't even know it as a field commander, but we on our satellite network and the Russians realized that he had sealed them off and they were threatening to get into the action. But in any case, uh, 
Obviously, that was all ground to a halt. Kissinger gets in there and disenfranchises them of everything they had gained, in effect, by uh, U.S. pressure. But uh, Jerusalem is reunited, and there are the Jewish settlements in eastern Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria are thus reestablished. It's kind of interesting that when Israel asked that the written agreement with the United States and the European countries that Israel had given in exchange for Israel's withdrawal from the Sinai, they wanted that agreement honored. They gave up the Sinai in exchange for a guarantee of, of, of protection. When they asked for the protection, the U.S. administration hemmed and hawed and said they could not find a copy of the agreement. Can you believe that? No, seriously. Seriously. Uh, I might mention something, by the way. I meant to mention this up front. I'll mention it now. You say, Gita, where are you getting all this stuff? Uh, let me tell you the sources I'm using. Uh, one of the most interesting sources is a book called A Place Among the Nations that was published in 1993 by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now the Prime Minister. And it's a great book. It's, it's must-reading if you're really interested in Israel. You really should look at it. It's very readable. It's, you can't put it down. And uh, uh, another of the sources that we're using is uh, a book published in 1994 by John Luftus and Mark Ahrens called The Secret War Against the Jews. Subtitle, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People. There's also a book, you may find it very hard to get your hands on, a hardback book that was published in 1984 by Joan Peters from Time Immemorial. It's The Origins of the Arab-Jewish Conflict over Palestine, published by Harper and Rowe in New York in 1984. Uh, it's been pulled off the market, but it's a classic study, and you can find copies around. Another book that's recent, that's excellent, is by Mike Evans called Jerusalem Betrayed, published by Word in 1997. Also Dave Hunt's book, A Cup of Trembling, by Harvest House in 1996. And David Allen Lewis, Can Israel Survive in a Hostile World? by New Leaf in 94. There's a whole bunch of others, uh, about a dozen other books. Uh, William Schur, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and uh, History of the Middle East, and there's a handful of others. But the ones I've mentioned are probably the, the primary ones, plus our own uh, sources. But that's, uh, In any case, in the Six-Day War, uh, Israel stood alone. June found Israel's armed forces facing massed Arab armies around our frontiers. Israel's citizen army had been quietly and efficiently mobilized over several weeks against the impending Arab attack, which every Arab medium of mass communication announced was imminent. So it was no secret it was coming. And so much so that obviously they took, in effect, a, a preemptive uh, posture. And uh, the Israeli Air Force commander took a preemptive attack designed to destroy the Egyptian Air Force and its airfields flying in low under the Arab uh, radar screens. Israeli aircraft destroyed the Egyptian Air Force and later it dealt with the Air Forces of Jordan and Syria destroying Iraqi aircraft, mostly on the ground. By the way, so they won against all those nations, right? Israel lost 777 soldiers in that war. The stories that have come out of that war are legend. Supernatural sounding miracles every place you look. Uh, I won't even start on all of that. Now following the Six Day War, the strategic position of Israel had changed dramatically. For the first time in its history, Israel had the benefit of defense in depth. It had, uh, in the south, it had the Sinai Desert to act as a buffer. The Israeli controlled the West Bank down the River Jordan, moved potentially hostile forces from the coastal strip and the narrow wastelands of Israel to area and areas surrounding Jerusalem, and it created an additional buffer for Israel's defenses. In the north, the threat now posed was that of Israeli artillery and armor towards Damascus, 
as opposed to the situation previously where the Syrian threat was against northern Galilee. So the cards were now in Israel's hands in the form of territories that have been used as jumping off ground for their enemies. They should have had uh, a, a you know, good basis for negotiation peace. On 19th of June, the Israeli cabinet unanimously voted to return the whole of Sinai of Egypt in return for peace and demilitarization. And uh, the whole of the Golan Heights to Syria in return for peace and demilitarization. And uh, there were other moves afoot too. Do you know who stopped all that? The Russians. All of these moves were blocked by the Soviet Union. Interestingly enough, President Nikolai Podgorny, together with a large military staff, came to the Middle East and immediately set about the task of reconstructing the Egyptian and Syrian armies. The Soviet moved influenced the Arab reaction to the Israeli peace moves. And uh, the Arab summit conference in Khartoum on 1st of September 67 passed the three no's, as they're called. No negotiations with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no peace with Israel. So that set the groundwork for more hostilities. In this period, too, Moshe Dayan, in his attempt to give land for peace, grants the administration of the Temple Mount to the High Muslim Council, called the Waqf. It's sort of a land for peace gesture. One of the controversial subjects that comes out of the Six-Day War is the, uh, the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty. And um, there are lots of speculations about this, especially that U.S. and Israel are supposed to be allies, right? At least on paper. The Liberty was not just a floating radio set uh, snooping on the progress of the war. It's more complex than that. Because the U.S. Embassy in Beirut could monitor all the traffic, uh, even tape uh, Israeli pilots talking back and forth when they hit the Liberty. But for that matter, the Egyptian Embassy in Jordan could listen to the radio traffic, and it was much closer than the Liberty. So what was the U.S. ship doing there? Well, it turns out it was one of the most sophisticated spy ships of its time making a war map. Every time any Israeli, anywhere, transmitted, whether walkie-talkie, aircraft, tank radios, ship, the ship recorded its voice and indexed it with the direction and strength of the signal. The ship swept up everything in the airwaves while noting the location of every speck of electronic uh, dust, if you might call it, in Israel. And since it didn't have computers on board, it uh, compressed everything electronically and did high-speed transmission to a land station on Cyprus where the British had one of the largest electronic listening posts in the world. Their computers would decode the traffic, plotting the military transmissions and telephone calls, etc. And um, then the calls were, nature of the calls were sorted, locations of major Israeli headquarters, smaller regiments, battalions, individual units. In this way, the British were making good on their promise to support the Arab case in Palestine, which they had made at the time of the Suez debacle in uh, 1956. Now, with all this electronic screening and all this stuff, uh, it was possible to produce an electronic, an accurate electronic map of every Israeli troop movement and position practically down to the man. And uh, with this information, which the U.S. and British were sending to the Arabs, the Arabs might have been able to actually turn the war around. Now, as the Israelis were pulling their troops out of the Sinai to deal with the Syrians in the north, the Liberty was able to inform the Egyptians of holes in the Israeli line. And this, of course, was intolerable for the Israelis, who were already upset because the U.S. had tipped Jordan off with important intelligence information. So they had to do something about it, but they had a PR problem, obviously. And so a plane was sent to map the Liberty's location. And shortly after, the plane flew over loaded with electronic information gathering equipment. From this flight, there was no doubt about the battle information being processed and that it originated from the ship. Given what was happening on the field of battle, the Israelis were faced with a choice of 25,000 dead Jews or one American ship. They opted for the ship. Within hours of the incident, the Pentagon released a media statement saying the Liberty had been stationed there to facilitate communications in case American citizens had to be evacuated. And they obviously couldn't admit that forwarding information to the Egyptians. The press didn't buy that. Then the Pentagon floated the rumor that the ship was there to spy on Russian installations ostensibly in Egypt. But they were only 12 miles away from Gaza. That didn't quite fly either. So 
By the way, the final coup de grace, the Liberty, was not under command of the U.S. Navy. It was under the command of, guess who? The National Security Agency. If you know its mission, you understand what that's all about. Well, then we get to about 1968, where the PLO hijacks an Israeli airliner to Algeria. This is the beginning of the PLO's international campaign of terror. In 1969, Yasser Arafat gains control of the PLO. It's also that year that there's a secret link between the CIA and the PLO established. We get to 69 and 70, what's sometimes called the War of Attrition. Egypt and Syria launch a campaign of continuous attacks along the Suez Canal and Golan Heights. The PLO step up their terror attacks across the Jordan. And heavy retaliation, however, by Israel brings that to an end. And that, they, they just stopped the policy of hitting them hard. Every time they hit us, they hit them, and that, they finally stopped all that. In 1970, Nasser dies and is succeeded by Anwar Sadat. Now, something else happens here that's kind of interesting to really understand the Middle East. The PLO attempt to take over Jordan. King Hussein uh, massacres the uh, Palestinian Arabs and expels Arafat and the PLO in what's called the Black September. See, by this time, the PLO had set up a base of operations in Jordan. And after 1967, a number of the guerrillas operating in his country posed a direct threat to the throne of King Hussein. By 1970, the commandos had their own administrations in Palestinian refugee camps, which, from which raids into Israel were staged. The people running these networks acted as if they were exempt from Jordanian jurisdiction. And things came to a head when the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked four civilian airliners and landed three of them in Jordan and threatened to blow up the planes with their hostages if any attempt were made to interfere. King Hussein had to take action for his own benefit. On September 25th of 1970, the Jordanian army was sent to restore order, beginning a 10-day period of slaughter known as Black September. Jordanian troops made no distinctions between guerrillas and civilians and bombarded refugees camps near Amman and pursued commandos throughout the country. And by the time Black September was over, 3,000 Palestinians had been killed. By the way, during this time, Israel issues a warning to Syria that it would interfere on Jordan's behalf if they moved. And Israel saved Jordan's throne. Most people don't realize that, but you need to understand. You have to understand where King Hussein is coming from these days. He's more afraid of Syria than he is anyone else. And Israel, because of its treaty with Turkey, for example, right now, has air bases along Syria's northern border. So the point is, that's why King Hussein has a... You know, you sometimes wonder, you wire... You, you know, What's his posture vis-a-vis Israel? You have to understand a little of the history here. And there's a treaty, peace treaty with, between them that I think is politically significant. I think it could lead to the stage of what's described in Daniel 11, verse 41, where the scripture tells us in Daniel 11, verse 41, that there are three places on the world that escape the rule of the Antichrist. Moab, Ammon, and, and uh, Edom. That's the area that we call today Jordan. And some people suspect that the treaty that's presently in place with Jordan may be the beginning of that relationship to give the remnant a place to flee to. But that's a thing we deal with in our briefing package called the, the refuge in Edom, uh, the real Armageddon scenario. But anyway, because of all of this, the PLO has to relocate from Jordan, and they relocate to Lebanon and establishes a de facto state in Lebanon. And uh, it becomes the headquarters for virtually all the terrorist organizations. And of course, the PLO campaign of terror uh, massacres and what have you in northern Israel continue. Now 1972 then we have the massacre of the 11 Olympic athletes in Munich you may recall. And that of course gives the PLO international uh, notoriety. That's 72. We get to 73 of course you have the Yom Kippur War 
Yom Kippur is the Israel's uh, National Day of Atonement. It was chosen because of an assumption that the Israeli preparedness uh, would be at its lowest and because it coincided with the uh, appropriate tides and currents in the Suez Canal. Both were factors. In Egypt, there were major exercises that were underway, but Israeli intelligence did not evaluate them as anything more serious than maneuvers. The type of exercise and concentration of Egyptian forces along the Suez Canal had occurred in the past without anything serious developing. And these repeated exercises were part of Egyptian, the Egyptian plan of deception. Now here's a case where they had really learned some lessons. Their, their misinformation, their disinformation, their intelligence operations on the Egyptian side were, were, were very skillful. This is one place where, this is the, the, the main place in history of Israel, recent history of Israel, where their intelligence organization blew it. Anyway, the Egyptian deception was so successful that it succeeded in deceiving the intelligence operations of all countries, including the U.S., by the way. It's not just the Israelis that were. 95% of the Egyptian officers taken prisoner by Israel knew for the first time that this exercise would turn into war only on the morning of 6 October. So it was very, very skillfully controlled. See, now, Israel's defense concept was always dictated by the inability of the country to maintain a large standing force. Our defense was based on three elements. Intelligence, which would give sufficient warning to mobilize. A standing army, which would fight the holding phase of the enemy attack while they mobilized. And then an air force, which had a large regular component. These three elements were designed to um, win time and hold the line until the reserves moved in and took over. On this occasion, one element in that plan went wrong, the intelligence. On Friday, October 5th, concentrations along the, nor- the northern and southern frontiers of Israel had given rise to concern, especially on the part of Chief of Staff General Eliezer. And uh, this was despite calming evaluations by military intelligence, which tend to explain it away in a logical manner. So he asked permission from the cabinet to put the armed forces on alert C, and, uh, which maintained the standing army at its, at its highest degree of preparedness, and allowed, allowed for certain limited mobilization. And frankly, he went beyond that. He mobilized more than he was allowed to. It's a good thing that he did. But in any case, on the morning of uh, 6 October, intelligence information was confirming that an attack would be launched against Israel. A meeting took place between the Minister of Defense, General Dayan, the Chief of Staff, General Eliezer. And at this meeting, Eliezer asked for permission to mount a preemptive air attack against Syria and to order general mobilization. General Dayan turned down the proposals. But after much argument, Eliezer pressed for total mobilization that he could undertake an immediate counterattack and he did agree to a mobilization solely for defensive purposes. The subject was brought to the Prime Minister, Golda Meir, uh, for a decision. And General Dayan was proposing for a mobilization of no more than 50,000 men. And Eliezer presented his case one more, and Prime Minister supported Dayan's stand on the preemptive attack and turned down the proposal, but compromised his position that of Eliezer by ordering a mobilization of 100,000 men. And he actually took the authorization even beyond his authority. But this is one of those regrets that echo through history. In her autobiography, uh, Golda Meir uh, says that uh, although everything did not look threatening from an intelligence standpoint, a nagging intuition told her to go to the maximum mobilization of the troops. And she regretted to her dying day that uh, she did not follow that intuition. And at 14 hours and 2 in the afternoon, the Egyptian aircraft crossed the Suez just as the cabinet was assembling to discuss developments. And the fact that a surprise attack took place on Yom Kippur actually facilitated mobilization because they knew where everybody was. Everybody's either home or in the synagogue. And so they, uh, the nation at prayer rushed to its assembly areas and uh, changing their prayer shawls for battle kits. And, uh, they were again fighting for their existence. 
And so in 1973, despite the uh, heavy casualties, Israel army reverses the tide, advances to Cairo and Damascus. The Arabs ask for a ceasefire <laughs> after three weeks of fighting. And of course, Henry Kissinger flies in and, and forces a disengagement agreement upon Israel and setting the ceasefire lines in the Sinai and the Golan. And this leads, of course, to the Arab oil embargo and some other things subsequently. But 1975, an interesting thing happens. The United Nations passes a resolution defaming Zionism as racism. It's pretty obvious if you just look at the record of what goes on. You need to understand how anti-Semitic the UN really is. We tend to believe the propaganda. Now this is an institution that failed in even the slightest way to curb the Soviet aggression of Afghanistan, a war that claimed a million lives and turned five million people into refugees, that for seven years did not lift a finger to stop the sickening carnage of the Iran-Iraqi war, in which another million perished. It did not even address, much less remedy, such outrages as the genocide in Cambodia, the horrific slaughter of the Igbo in uh, Biafra, and the massacre of hundreds of thousands of civilians in Uganda under Idi Amin, all in flagrant violation of the UN's own Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And libel, of course, is a prelude to murder, and we see it again and again and again. But meanwhile, the PLO control of Lebanon is challenged, and a full-scale civil war erupts between Muslims and Christians in Lebanon. And Syria then invades Lebanon and sets up permanent control over half that country. And the Western press ignores this. Make a big falderall when Saddam Hussein enters Kuwait. No one even is aware that at the same time, Syria just took over Lebanon and there wasn't even a peep. But the other interesting thing to keep in focus on July 4th of uh, that year, the PLO hijacked an Air France airliner with 106 hostages and lands it in Uganda under the protection of Idi Amin's army. The Israeli do an interesting thing. They organize a commando team that flies 2,000 miles, lands at the Entebbe airport, and in one hour wipes out the Idi Amin's army and the PLO and rescues 103 of the 106 hostages. They lost three hostages. The only Israeli soldier that was lost was the leader of the commander raid, Yoni Netanyahu, the brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, the present prime minister. Can you imagine what it must feel like when he sits down and has to negotiate with Yasser Arafat? Anyway, uh, 1977, the Likud government is elected in Israel. Menachem Begin is the first Likud prime minister. And President Anwar Sadat of Egypt responds to Begin's invitation to visit Israel. That leads, of course, to a peace treaty two years later. And uh, this is also about the time we have the first wave of Jewish immigration from the Soviet Union as a result of the Soviet-American detente. 200,000 Soviet uh, Jewish immigrants arrive in Israel. 79 uh, is the year that Anwar Sadat uh, of Egypt and Menachem Begin uh, of Israel signed the Camp David Accords. Israel agrees to return to Sinai. That is, they give up 91% of the territory they had won in a war of self-defense, land containing billions of dollars of investments, and oil fields that would supply virtually all, almost all, of their energy needs. They gave that up. Land for peace. Now, Anwar Sadat, for his trouble, in 1981, gets assassinated in Egypt. And uh, in 1982, the Israeli ambassador is shot in London by the PLO. 
Israel invades Lebanon with uh, aimed at dismantling the PLO terror bases, and PLO is expelled from Lebanon, forced to lo- relocate in Tunis. Now, I might mention under, the, under President Reagan, the policy was to never negotiate with terrorists. Oliver North was nailed to the Congressional Cross for violating that policy in Nicaragua. Right? Yet, while Israel was willing to grant autonomy to Palestinians resident in their country, the State Department pushes Israel to have to bargain with the most notorious of all terrorists, the PLO, who's headquartered at that time in Tunis. They're not even in the action. They're just a bunch of gangsters. But our State Department put them in power, in effect. In 1984, the U.S. and Israel signed a strategic cooperation agreement formalizing the alliance. In 1985, Israel withdraws from Lebanon and establishes a security zone north of the Israeli-Lebanese border. I remember speaking to uh, Major Saad Haddad, the good fence, as they call it, he was the one that was fighting for freedom in the Lebanon. And he says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He discovered that his best friend in the Christian group was Israel because they were supporting him. It was interesting. In fact, uh, his wife and man used to correspond for quite some time. Anyway, to this day, Syria still remains in control of most of Lebanon. Now, there was a hijacking. Hipilo hijacked the Aquila Laro cruise ship. You may re- remember Leon uh, Klinghoffer, the wheelchair-bound passenger that they murdered. And that whole thing... Uh, caused the U.S. to take the lead in the war against uh, terror. And um, in 1986, the U.S. and Britain bombed Libya in retaliation. Libyan supported terror attacks. In 1987, the PLO is banned by U.S. law uh, for terrorist activities. And, of course, the Intifada, uh, that is the Palestinian uprising, uh, begins in more formal terms. In 1988, the PLO pressures King Hussein of Jordan into renouncing all his claims to the West Bank and from Algiers, the PLO declares establishment of a Palestinian state with a capital in Jerusalem. This is just bombast. It would be meaningless if we didn't just support it. That's what we're doing. The PLO is in power because of Clinton. They're going broke until he bailed about. In Geneva, the 43rd Assembly of the UN focuses on problems in the Middle East. The U.S. recognizes the PLO, and Israeli elections put the conservative Likud party in power. And um, there's a four-point peace initiative proposed by Israel, including a call for Palestinian elections for municipal government. The initiative is rejected by the Arab nations and undermined by the Bush-Baker administration in the United States. Now, if you're looking at this from the Israeli point of view, you have to be totally bewildered. With friends like us, they don't need enemies. And, uh, of course, in uh, 1989 to 91, of course, is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Also brings a second wave of Soviet immigration uh, brings about 600,000 immigrants in five years. Now, an Israeli airlift brings most of the Ethiopian Jewry to Israel. They got over, I forgot the number, I meant to jot down the numbers, I forgot to, there's I think something like 1,100 per plane. They make the Guinness Book of Records, the maximum number of passengers on that plane. In fact, they break the record another way. It's the only time in history that they landed with more than they start off with because they had two babies born in route. <laughs> but the uh, Bush administration continues to bypass the Likud government in Israel and conducts foreign policy with members of the Labor Party. They bypass the party that's been elected and they're dealing with their socialist friends in the Labor Party. And because they're perceived by their Arab, the, our State Department's Arab friends, they, they perceive the Labor government as more likely to make territorial concessions. Indeed, they're right. About this time that Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, and of course we have the Gulf War. And uh, 
during that, you remember that Israeli is attacked by Scud missiles? But is kept from intervening on their own behalf by the U.S. Because that might break up our coalition or the facade of our coalition. We wanted the appearance of having a collective going against Saddam, not just us. So then, of course, we have the Madrid Peace Conference among Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Jordanian, Palestinian delegation. Israel is branded as the chief obstacle to peace. You remember how the rhetoric said the, the Persian Gulf War was Israel's fault? You got to be kidding. They weren't even in it except being hit. And of course, they're pressured to negotiate with the PLO. 1991, they are pressured to negotiate with the PLO. I had the view for many years, even then, there's no hope for the Arabs in the Middle East as long as the PLO isn't negotiating for them because they're gangsters and they attack the Arabs that are moderates to keep them all extreme. You have to, have to understand the dynamics going on there. It's interesting that the entire world has been unified in an attempt to divide up the Bible lands and to strip Jerusalem from the hands of the Jews. Have you seen that so far? Let me remind you what Zechariah says in Zechariah 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, he says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, the Lord who stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the peoples round about when they shall be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples. All that burden themselves with it shall be torn in pieces. Though all the nations of the earth be gathered together against it. And it goes on. Now that's talking about a very specific time yet future, and yet it's interesting what it portrays is exactly what we see forming up today. Who's on Israel's side? The U.S. isn't. Our Congress has insisted that the embassy be moved to the capital, Jerusalem. That's been a thorn in Israel's side since 1948. In every country in the world, the embassy is in the capital of the country. The capital of Israel is not Tel Aviv. It's Jerusalem. We haven't had the guts to put our embassy in where it belongs for fear we might offend our Arab friends. It's called the price of oil. The Congress recently, last few years, has passed a resolution to move the embassy and budget the money. Clinton refuses. Clinton refuses. It's not part of his plans. I don't understand our Congress and Senate. I don't understand Clinton either, but that's less important. He's a symptom of problem, not the problem. But where is our Congress and Senate? I really don't know. I don't know whether it's incompetence or treason. Or are they so frightened of the FBI file thing? I don't know. Our hopes were the rookies, I guess. Anyway, the question is, are we about to witness a collision between the ancient prophecies of the Bible and the modern conspiracy in the city of Jerusalem? In 1992, remember these 600,000 immigrants from Russia? Israel's trying to absorb these. There was a 10 billion dollar loan guarantee. Not a loan, just a loan guarantee by the U.S. to make that all possible. The U.S. freezes that loan guarantee to Israel, which was designated for the help to settle the, this massive influx of Soviet immigrants. Now this freezing of it resulted in a stalemate. It was intended to facilitate the Labor Party returning to power in Israel. And of course, Yitzhak Rabin becomes the Prime Minister. Do you realize that our government forced the result of that election? That's, the, that's literally what happened. 
we're imposing our will on their domestic politics. I thought they were sovereign. By the way, Moshe Ahrens, who was the Israel's foreign minister during the early Bush administration and defense minister during the Gulf War, he documented this manipulation and outright economic blackmail by the Bush administration in his 1995 book, Broken Covenant. In Israel, everybody knows that Baker leaked to the PLO the names of our four top undercover agents, and they were tortured to death the following week, and everybody in Israel knows it. No, uh, Baker as well as Bush were four-letter words in Israel. In 1992 to 93, something else is interesting. There are secret negotiations going on with the PLO in Oslo, Norway. Remember now that Itzhak Rapine campaigned on the fact that there'd be no giving back territories, there'd be no negotiations with the PLO. You go through his four or five points, every one of them was violated within 30 days of his taking office. Of course, in 1992, as a result of all this, declarations of principle, we'll call it Oslo One, was signed at the White House ceremony, transferring the control of Jericho and Gaza to the PLO control. And uh, in 1994, a peace treaty was signed with Jordan. I think that one's very important, more important than people realize. Gaza Strip and Jericho are turned over to PLO control. I find this kind of interesting. I'm sorry I can't hold up the Time magazine with the pictures on the cover. But in 1994, we have Yasser Arafat, Itzhak Rabin, and Shimon Peres received, guess what? The Nobel Peace Prize. Yasser Arafat. This is the man that ordered the murder of school children Avim Ma'alot in Antwerp. He ordered the murder of the 11 Jewish Olympic athletes in Munich, of synagogue worshippers Istanbul, of a childless pregnant mother in Alpha Menesha, and of a mother and her children on the bus in Jericho. This is also the man that ordered innocent Arabs in Nablus hanged by their chins on butcher's hooks until they died by whose orders the bellies of pregnant Arab women were split open before the eyes of their husbands and the hands of their children, Arab children, were chopped off while their parents looked on. That's Yasser Arafat. Just give you a few samples of his, of his career, his career resume. And he gets the Nobel Peace Prize. Makes Al Capone look like a saint. Clearly there's a little connection between character and destiny. Now, for Christmas 1995, we got a special treat for you. Bill Clinton and Itzhak Rabin chipped in together to get Yasser Arafat a nice Christmas gift. They gave him Bethlehem. 1995. The interim agreement, also two signed by the PLO, cedes Bethlehem, Hebron, and over 450 villages to Palestinian control. Now, it's about this time in 1995 that on October 5th of 1995, one of his many speeches of this kind, Prime Minister Isaac Rabin made a speech in which he declared that the Bible is not Israel's title deed. Wrong, Isaac. Thirty days later to the day, he's assassinated in exactly the terms that are tucked away in the Hebrew text of Genesis 15:17. An evil fire twice into Rabin, God decreed. Is what the Hebrew reads, if you ignore the spaces. And of course, Shimon Peres succeeds Rabin. Peres had a secret plan to divide Jerusalem. The word Peres, if you know Daniel 5, means what? Divided. Despite Clinton's two trips to intervene in their elections, the Israeli electorate elects Benjamin Netanyahu in their first national election as prime minister in 1996. Netanyahu, by the way, means gift of Jehovah or Yahweh. Interesting. I don't know what that's going to mean. We'll watch and see. 
And of course, the final talks begin that will decide the fate of Jerusalem, so we're almost up to date. Let's back up and take a little look at something else we need to profile. We've sort of gone through the tough work, the grind of the chronology. Now let's step back and make some overall views. Let's talk about Christian relationships with Israel. Let's try to understand that a little bit. After the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD and finally scattered the Jews in 135 AD, there was a religious vacuum in the land. And 200 years later, with the growth of the Christian church, uh, read that Catholic, of course, especially at the beginning at the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, the church discovered and claimed the Holy Land for itself. Okay? The early church fathers saw Jewish, the Jewish diaspora as God's judgment because they had rejected Christ. That was the theme, that was the, the view. So the early church, dominated by the Hellenists and the Romans, developed a teaching that because the Jews were eternally disowned, God has established the church as the true Israel instead of the Israel that was rejected by him. That vestiges of that teaching is extant in many of the denominations today. It is heresy. Jesus referred to that as coming from the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2.9, Revelation 3.9 give you examples, but let's go on. See, that denies the future of Israel and God's plan, which is explicit and nailed in the scripture, both new as well as Old Testament text for that. Anyway, now with that, they set themselves not only against the scattered Jews who daily prayed for the promised return to their homeland, but also made heretics of Christian Jews who under their bishop of circumcision uh, taught that the scattering of the Jews was only for a time and would last only until the full number of the nations had been brought into the community of Christ. Now, the theological position that the church is true Israel was strongly defended during the rise of Zionism in the 19th century. And on January 24th of 1904, when Theodore Herzl was received by Pope Pius X, the Pope explained, quote, We cannot agree with the Zionist movement. The Jews have not recognized our Lord, and thus we cannot recognize the Jewish people. Jerusalem will, cannot be allowed to fall into the hands of the Jews. Close quote. That's the Vatican's posture, which has been hostile to Jewry until recently. They've now volunteered to administer the Temple Mount because of all the tensions there. You have to understand the Vatican strategy. That's another study. We touch on that in the briefing called The Kingdom of Blood. Dave Hunt and I do that together, and I'll leave that for now. Now, of course, this rejection of Israel changed on June 15th of 1996 with the Vatican's diplomatic recognition of Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that the Catholic and Protestant churches had revoked their replacement theology or that the Roman Catholic Church's theology had changed either. Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant haven't changed their theology on this regard. And the confession of the individual church leaders that Israel is not cast off by God and that Israel is in the salvation plan, has a historical future in the Holy Land, did nothing to change the rejection of Israel in the church. And uh, this replacement theology and the conflict between that and Christian churches, which believe God is not done with Israel, accounts for the helter-skelter division of Christian churches in modern Israel. A lot of confusion. See, the word Christian has very little meaning, especially in Israel. Hitler was a Christian in their minds. And by the way, he was. Hitler has never been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Neither is Mussolini. Most of the top brass of the Nazi got out of Germany to South America by using the intelligence network of the Vatican. The rat lines. Check, check it out. See Dave Hunt's book, The Woman Rides the Beast. He documents all this. There are, of course, a number of uh, biblically-oriented Christians in Israel who see Israel's existence as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But these Christians have no diplomatic position. They are branded as heretics by the official mainline church representatives. For example, uh, Dr. Mitri Rahab, the pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, said, quote, 
The Zionist Christians are dangerous, a danger for peace. I compare such fundamentalists with the Jewish mass murderer Baruch Goldstein and the Muslim Hamas fanatics. Whoever believes that Israel's existence is, as a state is a proof of God's biblical promise is against the Bible, close quote. That's the kind of stuff you see. And so it's no wonder that on the first Christmas under the Palestinian autonomy of 1995 at the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, a powerful transparent announced Jesus as the first Palestinian revolutionary. Palestinian revolutionary. And there was also that PLO chief uh, Arafat uh, kissed the Catholic patriarch Michael Saba on the forehead and received as a Muslim the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. When asked whether or not he would uh, have given a Jew the power of the key, he had a Jew kissed him on the forehead. The a priest father Pomsey answered, the command to love one's neighbors is valid only for humans and Jews are not human. Close quote. You hear the echo of the Nazi line there? Still? Now when one considers the Israeli rejection on the part of the Palestinian Christians uh, since the beginning of the Palestinian autonomy, given that they exist as a defenseless Christian minority of barely 3%, and increasingly more fanatic Muslim majority of 97%, this probably originates in a naked anxiety for survival. So that's the plight of the so-called Palestinian Christian. One should not judge pronouncements uh, of the contemporary Palestinian Christians and their theology. It cannot be taken seriously since their position is determined by weather conditions and has no biblical basis. And in the face of strengthening Islamic fundamentalism, they, they express themselves differently than earlier. As example, the Bethlehem's churches on April 27, 1967, quote, since the Israelis took possession of our city, we have a feeling of being free. The Jews have desecrated nothing that what is considered holy by other religions. They have only cleared out the rubble and the garbage which had been collected over the years, close quote. And even the Muslim Qadi of Jerusalem, Tawik Mahud Asalia, in 1970 recognized, quote, may each Muslim in the entire world acknowledge that the religious freedom which we have enjoyed under Israel may continue forever, close quote by their own lips. Interesting. Now the Palestinians under the leadership of uh, Yasser Arafat began PLO terror and took Palestinian Christians as political hostages. Whoever among the Palestinians didn't agree with the PLO 150% was distrusted by his Muslim neighbors as collaborators with Israel. Some Palestinian churchmen adhered formally to the PLO in order to avoid the appearance of being a traitor to the PLO cause. Close quote. So uh, in August 19, uh, 1974, Greek Orthodox Archbishop Kabuchi was arrested because he was smuggling weapons and explosives into Israel from Lebanon. And the Palestinians were forced evermore into the PLO straitjacket. And uh, in order not to have the Palestinian Christians exposed to more danger, Pope John Paul II spoke before the UN General Assembly on October 2, 1979, as a spokesperson for the PLO and demanded a just solution to the Palestinian question, close quote. And capitalizing on the sympathy of the Pope, the PLO leader Arafat offhandedly declared the Palestinians to be descendants of the early Christians in the Holy Land. Can you imagine? So as Palestinian Christians more openly declared themselves on the side of the PLO, whose charter called for the destruction of Israel, the more Christians were looked upon distrustfully by the Jews. See the picture? So the Christians have found themselves between two unacceptable extremes. They were viewed by the Palestinians as collaborators for Israel, and by the Israelis as in the same spot, in a pot with the uh, Palestinians who fight against Israel. All Christians of all creeds became mistrusted by both sides. See the predicament. And at the same time, the Messianic Jews are in the worst dilemma. They are hated by the Orthodox Jews in Israel, tolerated if misunderstood by secular Jews, hated by the Palestinians because they are Jews, disowned by much of the mainline replacement theology churches because of their wish to emphasize Jewishness. So they found a way to get everybody against them. 
Now, there have uh, been efforts to have joint worship services between Messianic Jews and Palestinian Christians since the theory is that all in Christ are a part of one body, but members of both sides do so at great risk. And at the end of the 70s, the followers of the fanatic Rabbi Meir Kahana and his Kach group attacked the Christian establishments in their struggle against idolatrous pictures. Another Jewish radical group formed under the name of Yad Liakchen, uh, calling for a war against the missionaries because, the, quote, the Nazis annihilate Jewish bodies and missionaries annihilate Jewish souls, close quote. So the tensions continue. And when the International Christian Embassy um, in Jerusalem was founded in 1980 in order to unite Christians without an agenda of missionization, but only with intent to unify with Israel, a gradual attitudinal change came about that not all Christians are automatically against Jews in Israel, which has had as a result that Israel-friendlier Christians are regarded by the Palestinian churches as heretics to and be fought against. Now, I might mention, by the way, that many people in the government of Israel, Menachem Begin and others, recognized, finally, it took them a while, that their strongest support for the state of Israel comes from the biblical, fundamental Christian believer in the United States. Not from the ethnic Jew. And certainly not from the orthodox uh, uh, mainline denominations in the United States. You begin to understand why. Because those that take the Bible seriously, and that excludes many of some of the major denominations, those that take the Bible seriously recognize that God has a destiny for Israel and it's starting to unfold. But that's unique. See, the word Christian means many things to many people. So... Anyway, this is the theological and political ground that, on which 40 large and 470 small churches with 160,000 Christians live in Israel. Now, let's just try to summarize what we think we may have learned from all of this. And uh, first thing is, is the whole promotion of deception that you and I are victims of. And the forcing of Israel to yield to their enemies. You know, if we look back at this thing, the fact that terrorism is proven. You know, see, crime doesn't pay. It sure does. Terrorism does. And uh, we've gone through Arafat enough without having to hammer that. You might talk quickly about TWA 800. All the experts I know, from the intelligence reports that I have and from the other information I have, doesn't mean I'm right, but uh, it appears to have been a terrorist missile on uh, July 1st of, of 96. A, it was probably, it wasn't Stinger, it was a Swedish RBS-90, a gyro-stabilized infrared sight for night targeting, smokeless motors, supersonic missile. And the Iranian-backed London news organization, the Shanti Reef, claimed that the aircraft was downed by a missile and uh, as a response to the U.S. sanctions levied against Iran and Libya. Now, we could spend all night on just that topic. doesn't mean it right, but I, the experts I know uh, uh, are convinced that it is a missile. It's interesting, of course, that it's all been hushed up. All the evidence coming out of the water had to go to the FBI before being allowed to go to the safety inspectors. That's called managed evidence. And I won't go through the whole list of incongruities that I don't know of anyone that's... Um, independent and competent uh, that doesn't believe it was a, first of all, a missile hit. Another question is who and the likely uh, uh, candidates are obviously terrorism. Partly because it was predicted two years before by Avi Lipkin. Colonel Avi Lipkin was with us in Israel on our trip. I'll be seeing him in um, Philadelphia tomorrow night. It happens by coincidence. Uh, well, he and I were on the Warren Duffy show in 1995, more than a year before this happened, August 95. Well, she was saying that these weapons are in terrorist hands in the U.S. and the strategy is to bring down 747s on takeoff. That was a year in advance. So when it happens, you're not surprised. But let's get at something else. You know, Goebbels was right. A lie spreads in proportion to its size. And what's really fascinating is the success to which the PLO has been able to foist myths upon the world press. Now, the first thing is the whole concept of the Palestinians. You all know about the Palestinians. You know there are no such people? Until the 20th century, it had never been argued that there were a Palestinian people other than the Jews. 
The Arabs who lived there were called Arabs, just as the Armenians that lived there were called Armenians. The Turks that lived there were called Turks. The Druze that were called there were called Druze. Circassians were called Circassians. In other words, they weren't indigenous people. They were what they were. In fact, the Syrian president, Hafez Assad, told the PLO leader Yasser Arafat in correspondence, quote, there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. There is no Palestinian entity. There is only Syria. He's arguing it used to be part of Syria. And he's right. One time it was, in effect. Now, the Arab Palestinians were coaxed out of Israel by their Arab neighbors, promising to drive Israel to the sea during those wars. In 1948, Israel, with a population of 650,000 Jews, successfully absorbed 800,000 Jewish refugees from the same war that produced the Arab refugees. In other words, we have a nation of 650,000 Jews that absorbed 800,000 Jews that were refugees from the war. How do they do it? By absorbing them into their economy. You've got the Arab group who has 50 million population not being able to absorb 650,000 Arab refugees and haven't finished the job after 40 years. They're still there in camps. Do you know why they're in camps? Because the PLO keeps them there. Why don't they leave the camps? They're not allowed to. For a couple of reasons. First of all, the governments get paid by the UN per head. There's an incentive to have them there, financial incentive, among other things. Now, by the way, this 50 million population of the Arab, they also have the oil wealth. They couldn't absorb the refugees. No, this is an indication of the merciless cynicism with which the Arabs have manipulated the refugee issue to create reasons for the censure of Israel. The Palestinian problem is a contrived propaganda ploy by the Arabs. You say that to someone who hasn't got the background, they think you're nuts. All you have to do is look at the history. Now, it may come as a shock to most people who are not familiar with the Middle East to learn that PLO actually acts to prevent the Palestinians from leaving the refugee camps, as do various Arab states. These camps are a propaganda bonanza for the recruitment of new fighters, and it's willing to resort to violence to keep them intact. Now, what's interesting is the Western press has little interest in reporting this sort of bit of manipulation. Joan Peters, who was pro-Palestinian, was on a research project that when she discovered the truth, she published her book, From Time Immemorial, which is a debunking of the whole Palestinian myth. And uh, almost any competent book in this area will give you the same picture. This is, so anyway. Now there's another thing that's going on, in addition to that myth, is what Netanyahu calls, and he's right on, he calls the reversal of causality. Who is causing the problem? Was it Czechoslovakia causing the problem for the Sudeten Germans? No. It was outside intrigues bending it all around. See, the belief that you hear, the press presumes that Israel is the aggressor. That's interesting. You know, in the Six-Day War, up until the Six-Day War, you know, here was the poor downtrodden victims of the Holocaust. Aren't we, they're, you know, they're the, down, the underdog. Everybody's on their side. Here's all these big, bad Arab countries attacking little, helpless Israel. Up until 1967. Then as the Arab propagandists get in motion, the picture you have today is that Israel is the terrifying oppressor in the Middle East. Now, wait a minute. The Arab countries represent 540 times bigger. 500, not 100 times bigger, 540 times bigger. And who are they afraid of? Little Israel? The Arabs were killing Jews more than 30 years before there was a Jewish state. The sovereignty of Israel is not the issue. And that was 30 years before there was a single 
refugee qualifying as a, quote, Palestinian problem. And by the way, it's 540 times. The, the, uh, the Arab states are 5.4 million square miles against about 10,000 square miles uh, in Israel. And so Israel is the obstacle to peace in the Middle East. Is it really? Ask anybody. What's the obstacle to peace in the Middle East? Well, Israel, of course. The whole Israel problem. You fix that, everything's fine. Let's slow down a minute. Let's look at the Middle East. Take Israel out of the picture for a minute. Didn't Iran and Iraq have a war that went nine years? Had nothing to do with Israel. What about Iraq's invasion of Kuwait? Did that have anything to do with Israel? You, know, you get the picture of Israel. If the Israel problem was solved, we would have peace in the Middle East. No way. In 1991, Syria did to Lebanon what Saddam Hussein tried to do with Kuwait. Now, what's interesting is just to make a map of the Arab violence against the Arabs. Forget the Israeli thing for the moment. In 1985 was one a year of relative calm in the Middle East. It was not a turbulent year, a relatively calm year. Let's take a look at one month in 1985, the month of April. April 1st, Egypt uncovers a Libyan plot. Same day, Amal hijacks a Lebanese plane. Same day, a Dutch priest killed in the Baca Valley in Lebanon. 2nd of April, Saran People's Liberation Party claims it killed 120 Moroccans. Hmm. 3rd of April, Sidon, uh, Lebanon, uh, fighting kills 54, and Iraq bombs Tehran. 4th of April, we're four days so far. Jordanian plane attacked by Athens by a group calling itself Black September. Iraq downs an Iranian plane. The Jordanian embassy in Rome is attacked by Syria. None of this had anything to do with Israel. And we're only four days so far. 6th of April, there's a coup in the Sudan. 12th of April, Islamic Jihad group bombs a restaurant in Madrid, killing uh, 20. 13th of April, assassination attempt on a Lebanese uh, imam. 16th of April, United Arab Emirates oil minister escapes assassination attempt. 17th April, Amal surrounds refugee camps in Lebanon. That's going to do anything with Israel. 18th April, Amir Batun headquarters destroyed in Tripoli. 23rd April, Iraq shoots down three Iranian planes. 30th April, Iraqi terrorist plots against Libyan and Syrian embassies was uncovered. One month. Now, what's the point? The point is there's turbulence in the Middle East. These guys can't get along. And I've used the term Arab because that's the way the press uses it. You quickly discover you can't tell what an Arab is. What do you mean by an Arab? You mean a descendant of Ishmael? No, there's nobody on the planet Earth that can then trace his lineage to Ishmael. Why? Because he and his 12 sons did not have any reason to keep themselves separate. There was no tribal isolation. There was no, you follow me, there's, there's, you can't trace your lineage, even if, 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 if that was the issue. That's not. Esau and Jacob, same thing. So, if you're talking ethnically, the Persians are not Arabs. They hate the Arabs. You can talk about Syria, Iraq, Egypt, Turkey. You haven't mentioned an Arab yet. Some of them are sons of Japheth, some Ham, some Shem. They're all different. There's no ethnic linkage there. Well, I mean geography. Well, what is an Arab? Technically, it's inhabitant of the Arabian Peninsula. I'm not talking about that. The term actually means wander. It can be used broadly, and it is used broadly by the press. What do these groups have in common? They hate each other, but what do they have in common? They're Islamic. They have a legacy of hate. And as their children are inculcated with that hate, we're going to continue to have problems. Not just with Israel, with themselves. Now, let's just talk about casualties. Let's get this in perspective. In five decades, 50 years, how many casualties have, are there total between the Arabs and Israel? 70,000. Not trivial, but not that big a number as these things go. 
Arab, Israeli. Add them all together. Less than 70,000. In the Egyptian invasion of Yemen, there were 250,000 dead. In the Algerian Civil War, there's a million dead. In the Lebanese Civil War, there's 150,000 dead. In the Libyan incursion into Chad, 100,000 dead. In the Sudan, Sudanese uh, Civil War, at least a half a million dead. In the Iran-Iraqi War, over a million dead. How many deaths can you attribute to the Israeli-Arab conflict? 70,000. Not trivial. You can't use merely in, in number of dead in a sentence. That's not fair. But you know, try to get this in perspective. Where is world opinion about any of the ones I listed? The conflicts I've listed cannot be forced into a Palestinian straitjacket. Got nothing to do with Palestine. Now, this land for peace thing, the Treaty of Versailles, promised the Jews a national home in its historic land five times the size of present-day Israel. That's what was promised to Versailles. Of course, never honored. We hear the word West Bank. Where did that term come from? That term was forced into the international vocabulary after Jordan conquered the territory in 1948, and it was in order to obliterate the Jewish connection to the land. Because the land is Judea and Samaria, but to avoid the press use of that, they call it the West Bank. Do you realize that the Jordan River is the only river in the world with only one bank? Now, the same thing, the same ploy was done by the Romans 2,000 years earlier, where they named the land Palestine to divorce it from its Jewish heritage. So when you use the term West Bank or Palestine, you're using the vocabulary of, Jewish, uh, of, of Israel's enemies. People who have their, their hidden attempt is to disconnect the land from its Jewish heritage. The land does not belong to anyone but God, and he, and he, he is committed it to Israel. So we, we screw around with the title deed of that land. We're poking our finger in the eye of God. And he'll put up with that just for, just for so long. Now, Jerusalem is the one obstacle to the world system whose financial control will ultimately fall into the hands of a single man. We're heading for tyranny. The path that tyranny will be, of course, socialism, global socialism. And that man is the chief conspirator against the city of peace. He is probably already alive, active behind the scenes, for all we know. There's many experts that believe he's alive today. For a certain number of reasons, I think it's a waste of time to try to guess who he is, because I don't think he'll be revealed until we're out of here. And that's my own eschatology. I may be wrong. But I think soon he will be applauded as the one who has, brings to order and resolution to the problems of the Middle East. He will claim to have the perfect peace plan. And many who are listening to this tape will watch the man of peace on CNN as he begins to take over the businesses, the banking and other vital issues. More blood has been shed on the stones of Jerusalem than on any other spot on the earth. But he who really does hold the title deed to that piece of ground will have the final word. Uh, we might turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. See, what's forthcoming is the 70th week of Daniel. Six to nine were fulfilled. There's an interval before the 70th, but we can tell that the 70th is about ready to go. There's going to be a peace plan that even Israel thinks it's the millennium. And the guy that's committed to enforcing that plan for seven years does so for half that period. Then he turns on them. He betrays them. Israel's to be betrayed once again. And he sets himself up to worship and thus ushering in a time of trouble like the world has never seen. The Holocaust in Europe took one Jew in three on the planet Earth. Zechariah 13, 8, and 9 tells us that the next Holocaust will take two out of three. It's going to get rough. And yet, 
God has a destiny. Israel will be, have, be driven against the wall. But let's look at first what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For, you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. To whom? Let's put that as a question mark as we read the passage. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Eisenhower said, peace and safety will protect you. And when they needed them, where were we? Couldn't find the paperwork. Sorry. I didn't even try to count the number of times that Israel's security was guaranteed by the West. France, Britain, U.S. Never honored. Never once honored. It amazes me that they're even willing to consider giving land for peace under assurances. Today. Frankly, they wouldn't if they weren't being blackmailed to do it. The bad guys here are the U.S., as Satan's instrument, I believe. But when they shall say peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now, as you read Paul's thrust here, let's go back and read verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief of the night. Yet in verse 4 he says, it should not overtake you as a thief. Why? Because he says so, he explains this in verse 5. Ye are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober-minded. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that are drunk, are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What a wonderful passage. But it's interesting that it draws a distinction here. Which says, you know, the day of the Lord comes as a thief of the night. But if you read the passage carefully, you realize that's directed, it's what's implied to a particular group of people. There's two groups of people, those of the day and those of the night. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night to those who are in darkness. The brethren, ye are not in the darkness. That day should overtake you as a thief. You see what he's saying? You read the whole passage. Do it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Just read the passage. See what it says to you. I think we're heading into that time. Now, we're obviously, I've been reading some pretty disturbing stuff in terms of the, uh, not only the, the tragedy and of the repeated betrayals of God's chosen people, not just in history, not just back then, but even in recent times. And if you have any intelligence background and you start reading uh, some of the, the, the background here, of the, the, the Western espionage organizations, again, always undermining, uh, always adverse to Israel, taking advantage of them. The betrayal of God's chosen. We see it day by day. We see ourselves culpable because our own administration is, is guilty of, of manipulating their elections, guilty of depriving them of their uh, strategic advantages that were picked for by their own blood um, and uh, pushing them into a position of dependency, increased dependency, all by some misguided uh, presumption that we'll gain allegiance or, or uh support from the Arab community, not recognizing their religion forbids it, that we are in their eyes the great Satan. Britain made that bargain to its regret. It assumed that appeasing the Arab, favoring the Arabs over Israel was in their best interest, and yet it was the Arabs that always turned on them. It was Israel that was faithful and uh, took their side during the war, etc. And uh, just a, the whole history is tragic history. We're following the same trap. 
our administration is go through all the words and music for our own uh, electorate uh, constituencies, but in fact is uh, blackmailing, pushing Israel into an untenable position. But the good news in Psalm 121 is that he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now who would that be? God is in control. And he has his hand upon them. And the coming years for them is going to, are going to get be very, very rough. No question about it. Scripture describes it in great detail in many of the passages, Old and New Testament. But God does have his eye on them. They're the apple of his eye. And they have a destiny that he has not denied. The exciting thing about the God of the Bible, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God that makes and keeps his promises. And he made incredible promises to Israel. And you and I can stand back and watch him keep those. It'll be very exciting. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we, we thank you that you have indeed chosen your people Israel to be the means by which you brought redemption to the planet Earth. We thank you above all things, Father, that through them you have brought us, our Redeemer, our Messiah, our Lord. And Father, you've instructed us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So Father, we do bring before your throne your people Israel. We bring before your throne, Father, the city of Jerusalem. We thank you, Father, that you have declared the end from the beginning and that you have placed your name on that place, that you have a plan there. So we just praise you for that, Father. But also, Father, in our own immediate horizon, Father, we pray that you would draw each of us more deeply into your word. Help us, Father, to more fully understand your desires, your heart, and what you would have. Not of them, but of us, Father. Help us, Father, to indeed love the brethren of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you make us sensitive to what you would have of us in these days. Help each of us, Father, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior. Help us, Father, to never forget His Jewishness. We thank you, Father, for that voice that declared Himself from the burning bush and that wrote us a love story written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea so long ago. Help us, Father, to make Him our primary priority. Help us, Father, to make Him the means by which you measure all things and by which we prioritize all the details of our life. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father, as we commit ourselves afresh into your hands in His most holy name. Amen. For a complete listing of materials to further enhance your personal Bible study, or to receive a free one-year subscription to Chuck Missler's 32-page Christian Intelligence News Journal, Contact Koinonia House at 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. That's 1-800-K-H-O-U-S-E-1. To fax your correspondence, dial 208-773-6312. Or you can write to Koinonia House at P.O. Box D, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816-0347. 